The topic that we're going to be discussing this afternoon is that human existence doesn't matter, which is a fairly challenging proposition, and in the course of our conversation, we'll also try to unpack uh, what it is in any case, this, this thing called human existence. I should mention uh, before we get underway that we haven't had a long period of preparation where we've got really cleverly crafted answers. All four of us are philosophers, all four of us are prepared here to think out loud. We're from different disciplines with different experience, so uh, we'll be seeing how we go in the course of this, uh, challenging ideas, testing ways of thinking in public about such a question. And also, hopefully, uh, when we get within about, you know, 20 minutes of the closure, to be able to draw you in to add to our conversation, either perhaps with a question or you may even have a, a really uh, profound insight of your own that you want to offer as part of the conversation. Joining me here on the couches, uh, first of all, sit, and I'll go in the order in which we're sitting, Rebecca Newberger-Goldstein, who received her doctorate in philosophy from Princeton University in the United States. She's written a number of award-winning books, including novels, which on the mind-body problem, uh, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, and it's got a very important subtitle, A Work of Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> She's great on, Rebecca's very good on sub, subtitles <laughs> uh, because the next one is Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. Uh, would you please welcome Rebecca? <laughs> then Francesca Minerva. Francesca's joining us at FODI for the second occasion. Uh, she gave uh, with Alberto a wonderful talk a couple of years ago, I think it is now, yeah, Francesca, yeah. uh, on the topic that a fetus is not a person. Uh, which uh, was a very dangerous idea, as it turned out. She's a philosopher, a medical and bioethicist, and there is a difference there. She's currently the deputy director of the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics, uh, this part of it based at the University of Melbourne, uh, originally from Italy and is currently uh, based in Melbourne, but looking to travel back to Europe, I think, in the next year or so to resume a career over there. Please welcome Francesca. Thank you. And finally, Hugh Price, who has the, you know, the best title out of all of us, because he's the Bertrand Russell Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge University. And he co-founded, and we'll be hearing more about this during the course of the festival, the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. And Hugh is a philosopher who was a professor here in Sydney for many years and worked in uh, fantastically interesting areas, including the philosophy of time and a number of different areas. So would you please join me in welcoming Hugh. Okay, who wants to have a crack at how we might start with this notion of uh, why human existence might or might matter? I mean, I'll, actually, I'll start with you, Hugh, rather than asking for volunteers. I mean, you take, you take a topic like that, how do we begin even to break it down? If, if you were just given this to say, okay, here's a problem which you're going to have to start thinking about with a fresh sheet, so to speak, where would you want to begin? Well, Simon, I, I think given the way um, it's been framed, I think thinking about the question, matter to whom, might right. be a good way to go. Um, because we might want to say that there's a, a, a very big difference between the question as to whether human, human existence matters to us, that is, to humans, and the question as to whether it matters from any other point of view, indeed, whether there is any other point of view from which you can sensibly ask the question. Right. Would, you, would anybody else want to start in a different way? We, if you had just presented this fresh, you know, you're sitting there, 
in a quiet moment, you know, trying to think about this, would you start differently, Rebecca? Uh, well, actually, I've, I've thought a great deal about this issue of, of mattering. I mean, it seems to me um, that it lies very much at the heart of, um, of human nature that we want to matter. I think that there is, in fact, um, a will to matter, um, and that as soon as the basic needs of survival are satisfied, this will to matter sort of burgeons forth. And I think it, in fact, uh, is the source of uh, uh, all of the normative systems, uh, the, the religious systems that have survived, that emerged uh, during the Axial Age between eight, roughly 800 and 200 BCE, and our discipline, philosophy, that emerged at the same time. Uh, that there is this doesn't take very much reflection to think all these people came before us and they cared about their lives and they strived and they longed and they loved and they fought and they won and they lost and they left not a trace behind them. There's nothing at all behind them. Why shouldn't we assume that the very same thing is going to happen to us? Why did we even bother to show up for our existence at all? I mean, it's as if we had a choice. But so that there is this... Uh, you know, I, it's, it is, I think, the existential question. We want to matter. Do we matter to the universe? Well, you know, in some normative systems, yes, we do. Um, uh, my normative system, no, we don't. Um, but, um, but I do think it's a very, very deep question, uh, this will to matter, um, and how we conceive of our lives in order to build some sense of, of mattering out of them. Okay, well, we'll come back to this because I mean, a couple of other topics at the festival have been about narcissism and some of it's, you know, it's been talked about as an epidemic in the modern world. Mm. And that could be explained in part by this will to matter uh, as one expression of it. How would you begin, Francesca? Um, I will introduce another element, which is well, uh, why do we matter? And I will think that one answer is we matter because we can experience things and we can do things and especially we can experience happiness. And the other question related to this is, um, do we matter more than other sentient beings? And, uh, and that's an interesting question because animals uh, can uh, feel pressure, pleasure and uh, be unhappy as well. So I would introduce these other elements in all concerns about well, extinctions or possible risks to our uh, survival in, on Earth. Now, Rebecca had a go at trying to frame a particular answer to Hugh's first question, which is, matter to whom? And he mm -hmm. said there's a range of possibilities here. Rebecca said, well, at least mattering to us in the sense that we have this will to matter. So it's self-referential in that sense. Uh, you've included other things that might matter. Are you happy to stop with Rebecca's view that this is about mattering to other human beings, or do you want to extend who it is that we might matter to? Um, I'm not entirely sure that um, we matter to other human beings for somehow intrinsic reasons. So I'm You don't think we would matter for intrinsic reasons? Yeah, no, I would think that we matter because we can experience happiness and on this level then animals and other sentient beings come into the scene. Uh, but of course human beings have higher capacities and can experience things on a higher level and 
a wider range of emotions. So I can agree that you know uh, there is a special stress on uh, um, human existence. I mean, we, we in some sense, um, you know, we're the ones who want to matter. Uh, we're the ones who even think about this question uh, and, 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 and agonize about this question. Um, so although you could, um, here, I'll go out on a limb and say that um, because we care about this question um, and that we come up with various systems in order to somehow satisfy uh, this will to matter, um, that we matter more. Uh, that that this, this is already uh, points to a higher degree of complexity, um, of conceptualization, of normative thinking, of justification, uh, right? Um, we, we're considering the question that we don't matter and we're trying to justify to ourselves whether we matter, that all of this higher level um, uh, of conceptualization um, makes us matter more. Okay, so there's a qualitative aspect to human existence, whether or not it's evenly distributed across all humanity or not, but we'll attach it to being human, which you're arguing is marked by this capacity to have this kind of reflective conversation about our own existence, about whether it matters, even to make the kinds of points that Francesca was making about other sentient beings, and that this is at least distinctive of human existence. If not unique, it's distinctive. And therefore, that's one reason why we might matter more than the sentient being. Um, Hugh? I, I, I think this, this notion of the, the reflective standpoint is an important one here. And I think it marks a difference between the way in which Rebecca is understanding the question about mattering and the way in which, well, the way in which I was understanding it at the beginning. I mean, I think what Rebecca has in mind tell me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, is that we, it's the sort of standpoint we have as philosophers and we, we, we step back from ordinary kind of day-to-day -day considerations and think, does any of this matter? Big question, capital M. I was taking it in a much more ordinary sense, the, the, the sense we have when we think about some particular choice. Is there anything to be said in favour of that rather than that? So does the, does the choice between humans continuing to exist, humans not continuing to exist. Does that matter? Mm -hmm. And thinking mm -hmm. of that as just a, a, an ordinary sort of down-to-earth choice in the way in which you, know, you see a child run into the road. Does the fate of that child matter? Mm -hmm. Now, what you're thinking about there is not the, it's not the reflective standpoint, it's the question as to what's involved in the choice that you make um, down at the first order level, as, as, as yeah. philosophers say, don't, yeah. don't, when, when you have a practical choice. Yeah. To, to, so I have two, two responses to that. One is, I don't think it's just philosophers who think about uh, does human life matter. Um, I think that this is uh, um, almost universal. And uh, th that is, if, if, if a certain... You know, preconditions are, are set in place. You have enough to eat. You, know, you have a home over your head, and I, I think it's 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 not. Um, I, I don't think you have to have a PhD in philosophy, and I do believe that this was the the source of the of the axial age. It was questions about mattering, um, and you know, and then coming up with the super de duper mattering guarantee. God, right? We matter to God, right? And everything we do matters to God. And that, that is, um, so it, 
in any case, I would I would say that this is this is it's sort of how not you belong get, to philosophers. It's kind of how you guarantee that you matter by mattering to Absolutely. God. Absolutely, and the way I really this really was impressed on me is when I came out as an atheist, right? Yeah. And I got lots and lots of letters from emails from people saying, "What gets you up in the morning? Why, why do you want to get out of bed?" And this was never a question that occurred to me. I mean, I have so much to do. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Um, and I, 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 I struggled when you, where is this coming from? And I thought about it, and I think, ah, it, 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 it's people who think, you know, if, if you don't have that great guarantee that you matter, cosmically matter, um, what gets you up out of bed? That this, this was some sort of, and it was very interesting Did they to ask me. you about why animals get out of bed? I mean, did they, <laughs> did, no, was there, well, seriously, yes. was there a sense that, well, there might be a problem here that sentient beings like animals, they, they are presumably in the creation story are all made, all emanate from this divine being. So is it because they matter to God too that they're getting out of bed or? Yeah, maybe because they don't have to decide whether, you know, I mean, we're, we, we have to deliberate. And I mean, that's the other part of the question that you were, that you were asking. Uh, but we have decisions, you know, we make decisions and, um, and among, the things that we think about is, um, you know, what is it that matters? You know, I can make this choice, I can become a philosopher, I could become a doctor, I can do, you know, what is going to matter more? I'll become a mother or a parent or not, what will matter? And it's th these kinds of decisions, but, it, but it's, in some sense it's all referring to mattering, I think. I think you're right there, that it's all referring to mattering. Um, mm. But at a higher level, there's this stepping away, and which I don't think just belongs to philosophers, of saying, you know, does any of it matter? That sense of absurdity that comes over you as you're going about your life, doing this, that, and the other, and then that step away, and it's like, um, you know, Ridic just... Aren't we ridiculous creatures? Yes, the, the, yes. Yeah. Francesca? And I'm thinking that I'm feeling very superficial and shallow because I, I usually don't question myself about, oh, do I matter or do other people matter? But I usually try to assess whether I am happy and are other people happy. And somehow it is related because to me, the meaning and the goal of life is, is to be happy, to make the most of this limited time we have on Earth and to make sure that other sentient beings around me, humans and non-humans, are happy. Um, Can you just on this notion of happiness, because it, it comes up in philosophy all the time, and there are various translations of the word eudaimonia, which is usually, what, at least in the Western tradition, people are casting back to that concept, yeah. which these days is translated in a way that doesn't use the word happiness in English, but instead the word flourishing. Yeah. You're using the word happy, you mean, can you explain what you mean by this sense of happiness? Is it the sense of flourishing or is it something more like just a general sense of feeling good about um, yourself in the world? I think it implies both. So you have some basic level happiness, like I have an ice cream and I am happy because... And, but also like being able to have plans for my future and to achieve these goals. So it's a more of a long-term happiness and perhaps in, in the way like, that brings me to achieve those goals. I suffer a bit, but I have a goal ahead of me, and so that goal eventually will give me happiness. Um, so I think there are like, immediate and you know, um, non-immediate happiness, but overall I think it's a very psychological um, feeling. Like I feel happy and you know, um, 
my level of well-being is uh, reasonably high and uh, I take pleasure from the things I do and the surroundings. There must be a difference between being Italian <clears throat> and being Jewish, but... <laughs> Somebody once gave me an Italian Jewish cookbook. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> You know, I would say happiness is greatly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess it comes from being a hedonistic utilitarian, maybe more than being Italian, but maybe that, you know, uh, they are related. Yeah, I actually I never really thought if being Italian has an influence on that, but perhaps it does. Perhaps yeah. it does. <laughs> now, while we reflect on that particular difference, um, some people thinking, listening to this conversation in another time might think, ah, oh, well, yeah, it's all very well, philosophers sitting there, and they could be arguing about how many angels will fit on a pin, the head of a pin and things. But this question about human existence and whether or not it matters has a new kind of practical urgency, I think. And Hugh, I introduced you as one of the founders of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. And I wonder if you could unpack why you and, and Martin Rees and Jan Talon have actually created this centre, because this isn't just for idle speculation, it's not kind of a, you know, the, the pinhead conversation, is it? It's, it's a bit more practically oriented. No, I mean, it's intended to do something practical and something that we think uh, is very important. Um, and the, the, the basic thought is, well, first step, we're, we're familiar with things that might threaten the existence of the species as a whole, such as asteroids or mega-volcanoes, that kind of thing. We're also familiar with the fact that the we ourselves might threaten our own existence, as we've done for more than half a century with nuclear weapons. We've been very lucky to get away with it so far. Um, and um, in, in somewhat longer term, perhaps, from extreme effects of climate change. But there's a particular, particular class of human-produced risks which we feel is, is getting uh, none of the, almost none of the attention it deserves at the moment. And those are risks arising as unintended byproducts of some uh, remarkable and in many ways very beneficial new technologies such as synthetic biology or artificial intelligence. Possibly some people think the same is true of nanotechnology. Now, what's characteristic of those cases, roughly speaking, is that they have the capacity to put a tremendous amount of power, including power, which could be used to effectively to finish off all of us, or, or many of us, into a smaller and smaller number of hands. I mean, for example, by something like um, the creation of a, a, of a sort of artificial bacterium, a bacterium with purpose-built DNA for some purpose, which might be uh, you know, to, to, to kill as many humans as possible. Imagine some, when a, somebody, who thinks that, that somebody who thinks that they're taking a cosmic perspective and that the, the planet would be better off without humans. Well, a group of CSIRO scientists a few years ago developed a mouse box, which was within, if anybody weaponised it, would, that'd be it. Yeah, well, so, 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 so this is an example. And the, the, and the worry is that these sorts of things are going to become easier and easier to do. One of the people involved in the project with us in Cambridge, a sort of distinguished professor in zoology there, said that what frightened him was the thought that in 10 years' time, you'll have an app on your phone which will enable you to d design a bacterium, email the code off to a laboratory, and a vial will come back with your purpose-built bacterium in it. So, 
the general thought is that we've got to a stage in our technological development where we have to start thinking about this new class of risks, uh, risks which arise as unintended byproducts of things which are, are you know, very good things to develop for other reasons. There's lots, lots of good that we can do with these technologies. Um, and some of these concerns have been thought of as a little bit flaky. It's been difficult for people working within the fields to, to express concerns. They, 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 they're at risk of getting regarded as not being team players, that kind of thing. You know how, you know how these disciplines work. So one of the things we want to do is to create, a, in effect, a community of, um, uh, of scientists and others like philosophers, some of them very distinguished people, who will come together and say, no, we think these things need to be worked on and to establish a centre where this can be done and have links with, with, with similar centres elsewhere. And so that's the project of our centre in Cambridge, to try and focus a lot more attention on this particular class of risks, the, the ones arising from new technologies. Now, presumably, when you've been doing this, AU, Martin and Jan thought this is something worth cooperating on. You've put in funding applications, you've attracted people to, to this process. And, uh, they will have asked, no doubt, well, why does it matter? You know, OK, we can understand that there might be nano-goo that plasters the earth or self-replication of robots with autonomous artificial intelligence, and they might come after us, but so what? Um, my view, Simon, is, is that, that really it's, it's just like the case I mentioned at the beginning. You see the child run into the road. Do you sit there and think, hmm, does that child matter from the universe's point of view? Or do you try and save the child? Of course, you try and save the child. And, and this is exactly that kind of decision. Um, it's, it's not an immediate one because the, the consequences we're talking about might be 20, 50, 100 years ahead. But it, it's exactly that same kind of first order simple choice. So obvious that it doesn't require further explanation? It, it's so obvious that from our point of view, it doesn't require... Um, um, it, it doesn't require further justification. It's just as obvious that we should be doing it as it is in the case of the child running into the road. Now, of course, you can come along as a philosopher and say, well, it matters from our point of view. I understand why you're doing this. You're human, and any reasonable human would do the same thing. But does it matter from any other point of view? Does it matter from the universe's point of view? The universe doesn't have a point Exactly, of view. that's what I say. I, I say that's as sensible as the question, yes. does it matter from the table's point exactly. of view? And the answer is, but there are other people, and there's a guy I've always thought it would be good to get here for the festival, and I think his name, uh, I've probably got the second place, Linky Pentacola, I think, or something of that kind. Anyway, he believes, and others who of his mind think that it would be a positively good thing if human beings weren't on this planet, that... Yeah, so that's, I find it very difficult to understand that. It's a good thing for from... What? For oh, from he, what point he, he, well, this, this, this group, um, and I'm, I'm not a competent person to argue their case, but as I've engaged with it, they, they, they seem to think that there is a value in all other forms of nature which seem, in their view, to face grave loss, extinction in some cases, because of the activities of human beings and that human beings will continue to be wanton in their conduct, climate change, a whole lot of things. Therefore, remove the problem and let the planet get on with itself. I mean, it's almost uh, some of the, the Gaia thesis is eventually there'll be Mother Nature pays back and we're gone and 
they get on. That's the sort of argument they I make. F I find this absolutely um, obscene, actually, this, this point of view. You could argue, for example, um, I mean, here I, I just don't even understand it because it's for the good of something that can't even, doesn't have a point of view. It can't view, articulate it. Can't un, you know, I mean, was the, this planet better off during the Ice Age or when the dinosaurs were here? I mean, ask the planet. <laughs> Let's see what kind of answer you get from it. Or if you, you know, to, to just say, um, to wipe out, look, I, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, wiping out a, a, a one child's death is a tragedy. Multiply that, it's, it's tragic. If anything is tragic, that's tragic. And even if it benefits those for whom there could be benefit, um, it's still, um, it's obscene, it's immoral, it's tragic. So it could have been... But, but to whom? It's to I us. Mean, it's, it's, Presumably to us, because yeah. if, there is, if the universe has no point of view, if these other creatures are incapable of expressing a view about whether it's a good thing we're here or not, the only being for which this could be obscene is presumably other human beings like us. Yes, it's a tragedy for us. All of this takes place within the context of, of us. us. Uh, the universe doesn't care. Uh, nothing, you know, and other creatures don't care. It's, it's for us. But if... You know, if tragedy means anything, if our great literature means anything, if we're able to respond to any of this, and these are contexts of meaning that we create for ourselves, doesn't objectively exist out there in the universe, but there it is, um, then, you know, wiping out this. Here's another thing. Here's another reason why perhaps, you know, it would be a tragedy, maybe even for the universe. We're the part of the universe uh, that understands the universe, you yeah, know, or yeah. understands a bit of the universe. Uh, we keep, we keep, uh, th that's a very interesting thing about our yeah. species. I'm proud of our species, right? That well, we, I was in Uganda yeah. over January. I was watching our nearest relatives, uh, the chimps, and, uh, you know, there's so many ways in which we're so similar to them. In fact, I got a, a, a completely new insight into the difference between the genders by watching the male and the, and the female chimps. Um, but, um, you know, so much of, of our behavior is replicated by the chimps. But I just kept thinking, by golly, we are, we've come so far. Right? This is really amazing. Uh, you know, here we are having this kind of conversation or, you know, I go to a concert and here we are, we created these, mm. you know, masterpieces and they are masterpieces. It's only for us that they're masterpieces, but they are. That is a very cool thing in the universe. Um, that, and it, it's this part of the universe. Yeah, I want to come back to the argument because I came to a similar position in a conversation I had with Bill Joy, who's one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. And... He wrote quite a few years ago now, something which prefigured your own work, Hugh, in a, an article in Wired magazine where he looked at self-replication and applied that to robotics, nanotechnology and biotechnology and saw this as an existential threat and said, well, let's start talking about it at this point of view. And then I had to discuss, well, why does it matter? But it's very much in that space. But Francesca, I sense you wanted to jump in when Francesca uh, was talking yes, about Yes, no, I, I was wondering if then... Um you would agree that uh, if uh, the extinction of the human species would occur because a better species comes in, and either because we evolve in a way that, you know, um, a new species 
come up or because aliens uh, take over Earth and then, you know, they can experience much more happiness, they are much smarter, they can do things we cannot even think of. Would in that sense be a good thing, like life, uh, the extinction of human species? Because in that case, you see, you say, yes, well, you know, humans are not here anymore, but look, we have something much better. Um, would you think that that would be a bad thing or a good thing? I think it would be a good thing. That would be a good case uh, for human extinction, but I'm not would sure. Would you be lining up for, you know, say, <laughs> here I am, you know, I'm happy, but... Well, no, but like, um, because I am living now and, you know, I have a project for myself, but if they told me, okay, like, you know, Francesca, you can have children because um, some better uh, species will... I would say, okay, well, fine. Um, that's fine by me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there might, there might be another possibility, which is that there's plenty of room for, for the humans and for the other species. Uh, which means, brings me back to something I wanted to say, sort of following on from Rebecca's comments. I mean, I think one thing which had got a little bit lost in the discussion earlier was that to say that the universe has a viewpoint is certainly not to say that we're the only creatures who have a viewpoint or have interests. And the chimps certainly have interests. To what extent you could call it a viewpoint, I think, is, is questionable. But I think there's a, a very strong case for thinking that we should, in, at least in some respects, we should treat chimps and other apes as, as persons, as, as, as creatures with, with, with sort of moral rights of, of some kind. So, so I, I didn't mean to be implying a, a, a sort of human-centric view of the, the moral community. I, I, I just meant that... in if you try to go to the other extreme and think of the universe having a point of view, that's as ridiculous as thinking of a rock as having a point yeah. of view. It's, yeah. a, it's very well yeah. Yeah, I agree with you cultures. entirely. Yeah. Agree with you entirely. And, you know, um, you know, we could say that there are, um, there's a kind of hierarchy, a kind of yeah. gradation, and, you know, every sentient creature um, has a, every creature that can suffer. Suffering is bad. You know, exactly. and suffering is just bad, whoever it has. So whatever sentient creature suffers should not suffer. A, yes. a normative statement there, ought not to suffer. But then, you know, perhaps, I'm going out on a, you know, a, a, a creature who has self-awareness, so who passes the, uh, what is that test the they get? Test? The mirror? The mirror test, you know, with the spot on it and, you know, the, tries to rub it off and has some notion of a self, high, you know, higher notion and perhaps capable of more emotions. Being aware of itself as a self has more complicated uh, emotions. Um, perhaps at the next level, creatures like us, and maybe chimps even, uh, maybe even elephants, who have a narrative, you know, have a sense of themselves continuing over time and can form plans um, and um, capable of mourning, you know, those who have left its life. You know, and I can imagine a next higher level as well, but I don't think having a higher level wipes out the other ones. Exactly. No, but there is this old idea, and it's just one concept worth unpacking a bit, just uh, because we may have used it in a way which not everybody understands the distinction that was being made. In this uh, ladder of being, if you like, that... Um, you kind of got ant being and frog being and then human being somewhere on this spectrum. Uh, you, you referred to this concept of, well, perhaps chimps should be considered as persons. And one of the things that people don't always understand when they hear philosophers talking about this is that that notion of personhood as a moral category is uh, different to the biological category exactly. of yes. human yes. being or chimpanzee or yes. something of that yes. kind. 
And, and Peter Singer, um, another Australian philosopher, has argued that not all human, well, not all persons are human beings, so that it should be extended to include chimps and you suggested elephants and other creatures yes. that might have narratives. But also that not all human beings are persons, that there are certain attributes in which, you know, or states in which human beings are no longer able to be held within that moral category because of incapacity or whatever. It's been a very controversial argument. You've touched the edges, or not just the edges of this, in some of yours and Alberto's work as well, Francesca. Yeah. Uh, but, but this notion of there being a ladder which th there are differences, but that it doesn't wipe out the interests or, or concerns or even perhaps the rights of other things, is that, do we all agree with that? that there's something like that at work or do you want to have a kind of a flatter structure? Francesca, perhaps? Um, well, I think that the things that matters the most is the capacity to suffer. So we have to make sure that um, no creature which is actually able to perceive pain and to suffer is not inflicted suffering. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And then, yes, of course, I agree that, you know, uh, as you um, have capacity to have projects and plans and to have um, higher brain um, functions, then uh, it probably matters more to you to keep Living, yes. You have more opportunities to suffer. Um, <laughs> but also to be happy, hopefully. Um. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> it's <a> Italy, your <laughs> stereotypes. <laughs> um, I, I, when I was talking about this with uh, that conversation with Bill Joy, the thing that occurred to me was that may not be unique, but again is distinctive of human beings, and this comes back to your point, Rebecca, is that we have this um, evident capacity to transcend instinct and desire and to make conscious ethical choices. I mean, a lion on a veldt might see an impala, uh, stalk it. Uh, I, I rather doubt that it stops and says, oh gosh, I'm hungry, but what about its children? You know, I, I think they're inclined to go and catch it and kill it and eat it. Although there are some interesting um, exceptions that you hear about. Whereas human beings, without anybody ever observing them without ever having a restraining hand in place, can um, feel every instinct or desire to do something but not do it, yes. purely because they've said, well, that's wrong to do, or, or they will do something like uh, stay firm in the face of terribly fearful moments and show that courage when instinct and desire would send you to run away. Yeah. And I wonder in this conversation whether or not a universe that has produced that kind of consciousness with that kind of capacity, that there is something special about it, uh, that it would be a somewhat tragic if it just got snuffed out, unless it was replaced at least um, in your thought experiment, Francesca, by a kind of being which was not just better in the sense that it had a few extra arms or it was smarter, but it would have to have that sensibility too, otherwise there would be a tragic loss. I mean, I would go even further than that. and. Um I, uh, I actually believe that um, we've made moral progress. Um, yeah, I and agree, that, I agree. Yeah, and that uh, our, I'm very proud of our species before that, but also um, I'm proud of our chosen profession, philosophy, because I think philosophy has contributed uh, to, you know, this uh, um, rigorous uh, analysis of justification um, and examining grounds um, has, um, has contributed, actually, to individual rights movements and spread of moral progress. I mean, when we can look back at what our ancestors did, our, um, you know, slave-owning, wife-beating, 
xenophobic ancestors and um, say, you know, we've come a long way. And, and that, to me, is something very, very interesting, that it's not just um, in science that we've increased and made progress, you know, but in our moral capacity as well, that we've been able to reason our way into what Peter Singer calls, your great Australian philosopher, now at Princeton, um, the... Uh, Man of impeccable taste. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> Um, the uh, widening circle of, of, of empathy, you know, but we've reasoned our way into that. And that is, uh, you know, I would be sad to see creatures who have accomplished that go. Do you think we can talk about uh, belonging to a certain class of being then? So all humans, irrespective of their particular attributes, have a certain kind of uh, significance because they are human, uh, just because they belong to that class that can produce the Brahms that's being played, I think, at the moment somewhere in the concert hall, the great, all the, all, all the interesting things which you are proud of for our, our yes. particular species? Or do you think we should be looking at you know, a more individual assessment of each person in terms of their capacity? Francesca? Um, no, as I was saying earlier, um, I mean, the capacity to experience pain is, um, and, you know, and to have plans for the future and to reach goals and uh, plan life. Uh, that I think belong to every uh, What about if person? a particular individual cannot experience pain any longer or um, form goals? Like do they still belong to that class or have they fallen out of it if they for um, some reason have lost that capacity? Yeah, like somebody is in a vegetative state or... Um, yes, I think that the uh, category of person wouldn't apply to that individual anymore. And so therefore they would lose their interest in keep leaving. Um, um, yes. I mean, I would want to, I, I didn't want to say that because, you know, we've produced masterpieces, you know, some, some, some of our species There's has. There's a few other terrible things we've produced. I mean, he yeah. talked about atomic bombs and we've tortured people, enslaved people. And it's not exactly, and philosophers have played their role in bad creating philosophy. these. Bad philosophy, only bad philosophy. <laughs> whatever, it's created, it's a bit like electricity then. It's yeah. created, we played our role in creating systems and ideas which have been totalitarian in their function. Which but I, I, I actually would not Before want to... Before we get to, too self-satisfied. Yes, I would not want to say that it's producing anything extraordinary that makes us matter. You know, when I... Um, so uh, when I was at the um, uh, uh, Museum of the Holocaust in Berlin, and my family was uh, decimated by the Holocaust, and I went to see uh, this, it was just when it opened up, um, and I walked... Well, maybe I was just primed to be enraged, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, given my family history. But um, it made it seem as if, oh, what a tragedy, that German Jewry was wiped out because they, they were Einstein and they were, you know, Anne Frank and, you know, and they would have, the, they had the violins and the this and the that. And I was like, no, that's not why it was a tragedy. Most yeah. of them were just regular people, mm. um, and, um, and, and it's still a tragedy, right? It, we, we don't have to be extraordinary mm. uh, in order to, to, to matter, in order for it to be uh, tragic for us to be well, wiped out. Well, your capacity down. to suffer doesn't depend on your intellect or exactly. IQ. Or, or to want to live and to mm. want your children to live and to prosper. I mean, that's what makes it okay. tragic, tragic. Well, look, let's throw it open. Look, there's possibly people sitting in the room who are thinking, oh, yeah, they're all self-satisfied, sitting up there on their couch and things like that. 
want to prick the balloon a little bit. Anybody like, there's microphones either side here. We've got lights which can be brought up to where the microphones are, just uh, they're either side there. I know that I can see one slight glimmering. Um, if, if you'd like to come down, I don't know if we've got, can we bring up the house lights a little bit so we can see, ah, there you are, the lights are coming up on the microphones, right? And just there, because we've got about 20 minutes to go. So would anybody like to come and join our conversation? Uh, you can ask a question about this matter in general or about some specific element, or as I say, add your own thoughts about human existence, what it is, why it might matter, uh, including the threats that Hugh was talking about. So down here, if you just uh, say your name, please, and jump in. Stephen Menzies. Um, I love Francesca's view because it seems to be the reincarnation of the Epicureans. I mean, we only live for this life and the pleasure we derive. I want to ask a question, though, of Rebecca. If we take the view that our whole species can no longer breed through one of Hugh's existential risks, a biological hazard, at that time when we can't propagate the biological urge to reproduce, what then and how do we matter as a species? What should we be doing? Those of us who then live, but know that the species will end. <laughs> Good, so we're starting off with an easy one. <laughs> I think you've given me uh, the theme for my next novel, so I thank you very much. But, um, you know, in some sense, uh, you're saying, so if we, if, if we were the very last and we knew we were the very last, mm. um, how would we spend our last days? Or Because Epicurus said we should still be happy. We, within ourselves, within our reaction of those who are still yeah. around us, we have a complete universe. And so that's why I like uh, Francesca's You don't need a future to be happy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I guess I would feel very bad. I wouldn't be happy. I'd be very sad for, um, for, the, uh, for this species uh, disappearing from, from the universe, for this species with its uh, incredible history, um, its stories, its, its, its drama, its... Uh, its, its tragedies, its triumphs, that whole but, thing but disappearing would seem to me the universe has lost something very big. And I think that you feel that way too, which is absolutely, why absolutely. you yes. are studying the existential risk, you yeah. know, that it, there's uh, the loss of this species would be But you'd be okay, but wouldn't you? I, you'd say, it's okay, well, that's it, that's it, you know? You'd no, still... no, I, I completely agree with this. Like, my point is that it would be a, a tragedy because of the loss of future happiness, that you know, if we don't have human beings or we don't have any species surviving anymore, nobody would experience happiness anymore, and that would be tragic. There would but, be... but once that was inevitable to you, if you accepted the proposition that this is definite, there is nothing that can be done about it, would you not simply resign yourself to that and say, okay, I feel terrible about that, but I've got to get over it now and be happy for what remains of my days and that of humanity? Um, I mean, or would you person. be weighed down by this terrible thing? I mean, I'm thinking about your, your will to matter. Yeah. I mean, I that think could also be a kind of pathology that could get in the way of in, you know, enjoying what days you have remaining. I think it would depend very much on your personality, right? It's, I right. don't think there's a real right answer here, you know. Some of us would mourn um, and some yeah. of us would go off to the orgies. Right. <laughs> Right, that's a, that's a tough choice. <laughs> Let's go over here. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Hey, um, you 
touched on my question slightly when using the ladder analogy for animals and human beings, and also when you touched slightly also on saying chimpanzees should get the same rights as human beings. I was wondering what you think about every animal getting the same rights as human beings, irrelevant of their ability to suffer or feel happiness, but rather that the rights that we have and some animals have, are they innate or are they given to them by us? Now just to clarify, are you saying just <coughs> animals or all life forms? Are you All life wanting, forms in general. So flies and beetles yes. and bacteria? Yep. Okay. So you, and, and what do you want to know? Could everything Does, that is sent, uh, sorry, alive enjoy a, a fundamental ethical status? Yes, do they deserve the same rights that we have? The same right. rights as us. Okay, Hugh. I, I would say no. I mean, I, mean, I, I want to tie it, and I, I, um, I think this was Rebecca's view too, to the, to the fact that some creatures clearly have, for example, the capacity to suffer. Um, and the, um, the, the sort of duty we owe to them depends on that, and so it's inevitably a matter of degree. Um, now, like, like many people, like um, Peter Singer, who's been mentioned a couple of times, I, I, I think there's a, a strong case to be made for you know, giving species the benef benefit of the doubt to, to a certain extent, and so drawing the circle rather widely. Um, but I, I, I really can't see anything in the ideas that we've talked about um, in favour of thinking of, of every individual life form as having some sort of intrinsic right to exist. Does anybody want to take a different view on that? Otherwise, we'll move along. Does anybody want to say, no, I actually want to make some claims for all life forms, even um, bacteria and virus yeah. and things? Well, I think that like bacteria and some insects don't actually have the capacity to um, feel pain. So, and I think there is one basic right that all creatures who can perceive pain are entitled to, and that's the right not to be inflicted pain. But besides that, um, I don't think that you can extend the same, like the right to vote, to, you know, what, what about What about this kind of reverence for life, to, to exist, that life can be seen as an attribute of all things that obviously, by definition, are living, which they have a, a right to maintain without being summarily denied that existence? Well, have you ever read, uh, lived in a roach-infested apartment? No. No, I, <laughs> I draw Question the answer. line, yes. Right. Um, down here. Oh, you might have to pop up a bit. Yeah, thank you for yeah. that. Mother Nature wanted me a little bit short. Yeah. So here we are. Um, first of all, thank you very much for, you know, sharing with us your ideas. I have a question for all of you around human existence in the context of the digital world. Like you raised... Um, um, you know, the new class of risk unintended by products of technologies and the fact that we are surrounded by Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, you name it, all of them. And it looks like we've lost the sense of relating to each other, to matter to each other in a face-to-face -face environment and everything is getting digitised in 101010. How, what's the evolution of that? How do you see it? How are we perceiving? Do we matter? Do we matter to ourselves and do we matter to others in this kind of context, which is a whole revolution? We've never experienced something like that so Francesca, before. Francesca, given how, what we're saying about why we might matter, is this being eroded by 
the digital thing. You can tweet this answer, OK? Uh, uh, I don't have Twitter, <laughs> and I work in the digital world, and I can tell you, I, it's like, I don't even have a smartphone. Right. <laughs> Francesca? Um, I, I kind of feel optimistic about that. It kind of makes me feel that we are now able to connect to people who are so far away from us, and that we wouldn't meet in any other ways apart from, like, you know, um, the web. So, you know, if you have a blog, and then you read other people's blog, and you kind of feel part of those lives. And on the other hand, um, it, it gives us a bit of immortality. Uh, the other day I was thinking, well, if I, when I die, um, there will be so many pieces of myself around, like things I've written online, that it's kind of, I'm always being there, because all this information, all these thoughts are going to be stuck there. So, I don't know, it kind of makes me feel more hopeful in some sense, but maybe that's because I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Italian too, and I can tell you that some Italians are happy, but lots of them are unhappy. And those who are unhappy are in Australia, because they cannot be happy in Italy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Rebecca, are you a digital sort of person? Who's... Uh, you know, I've been pulled into it a little bit. Um, not, not as much as uh, most people in my line of work, uh, mm. that is, uh, writers. So I see it actually very much in terms of, again, the will to matter, um, that it is um, spreading yourself out there. And, you know, I go, I don't know how it is here in, in Australia, but I go to a restaurant in New York or Boston, and everybody's taking pictures of their food. Do they do that here? Right? Well, taking... we just have a lot of unhappy Italians. <laughs> <laughs> Pictures of their food to you know to post yeah, like, Instagram and, yeah. and all of this and it's a, it's a kind of um, you know sort of spreading your life out there showing you know that you're that you're here and getting attention. I mean to me it seems uh, you know uh, it, it's in the in, in in the aim the goal of trying to matter. It seems. You know, I'll say say it. Uh, you know, somewhat pathetic to me. I think that there are better ways, um, you know, of trying to. Um, but I don't want to. I mean, everybody has their own way. I write my books. Uh, other people tweet. Uh, you know, I, I actually to thought say the, one is better than the other. I actually I thought the know. question was going to go somewhat different direction. Yeah. Talk about kind of a disembodied human consciousness inhabiting the net or something like that. Uh, but. You, you. I, 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 yeah, I think we're a, lo a long way from that. I mean, I think one of the things we have to realise here is that we've been talking about human extinction, but human culture is constantly evolving, and so part, part of that process of evolution is, is that some bits of it get e extinguished, um, and often that's a good thing. We manage to get rid of something um, which we come to see as rather nasty. Um, and I think the, 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 the case of Facebook is just another evolution in our way of interacting with each other, and, and it, it has pluses and minuses. I, I actually rather like it. I actually rather like enjoying taking pictures of, of meals I have in our coffee. <laughs> it's the world of Especially good coffee, which is, everyone here will know it's easy to find in Sydney, not so easy to find in other parts of the world, thanks to Italians <laughs> who came here generations ago. I love um, the idea of the Bertrand but, Russell Professor of Philosophy snapping a quick cappuccino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a, a number of comments now in order. We'll try and hold them in, in together because I just think there's a lot of people lining up. So you go first and we'll just take it. Try and keep it kind of snappy. Yeah. 
Um, thanks very much for the uh, discussion, very engaging and intriguing. Um, I just want to quickly ask about apparent paradox that seems to be in, in us. So um, the more that we think that our existence actually matters, um, the more we act in a way as if it ultimately doesn't, um, because the more our material comforts and existential flourishing happen and, and, uh, and seem to matter to us, um, the more we um, devastate the very ecosystem that we completely and utterly depend upon, um, whether through overpopulation, environmental degradation, etc. Um, so I wanted to ask, what, what do you think is the reason for that paradox? Is it something that's inherent in us and, and just lay dormant until the technology actually arrived so we could actually start to fundamentally devastate the planet? Uh, or is it that uh, there's a sort of superficial narcissism, narcissism that that ultimately covers an uneasiness of being in the limelight. Thanks for that. Snappy was the operative word. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, it can't always be done. Uh, I should say, we're running a bit late, but we're going to use the full hour, so people might have to go after other sessions. If you wander off, that's OK. Um, another person here? Hi. Um, someone once wrote, the question of happiness isn't the important one, but the one that follows is. So I was wondering what each of you thought was the question after this one. So after the question, what? Whether human existence matters. Okay, we'll take that. We'll take another person. We've got the paradox about pursuing what matters and destroying ourselves in the process. Happiness, what comes next? Hi, um, so I just wanted to ask you know, we've established that human existence does matter. How much does the existence of future generations matter, you know, in the distant future? Or, or should they matter at all? Come, you know, climate change factors mm -hmm. into that? Given that they don't exist at the moment. Good. Yeah. One last one, perhaps. Sure. Um, I'd like to ask, in terms of uh, animals and uh, their ability to perceive what matters, uh, would you argue that the fact that we can't uh, necessarily, like that animals can't express their opinion of mattering in a sense that we can understand whether that justifies their existence or not, um, in terms of what you've been discussing earlier? And also, uh, if some human groups, say, um, are so preoccupied with their survival and making uh, daily life work, that they're unable to consider matters such as this, whether that means that they don't have the same value as we do in terms of what you were saying earlier about non-human animals. Okay, so let's have a crack at those. Uh, who wants to start? Hugh. Could, 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 could I just have a try at, at yeah, tying together bits from, from, from two of those questions? So the one about us making such a mess of the planet and the one about future generations. Because what I wanted to say in response to the one about us making such a mess of the planet in pursuit of short-term happiness um, the person who said that is, of course, absolutely right. Um, um, I think one of the things that's to blame is a, is a kind of, it's a sort of cognitive defect that we have to think too much about the short term and not enough about the long term. And that's exactly the problem that, that, that we need to face in thinking about future generations, of course. Um, we, we're much better at dealing with immediate problems like the child running into the road than we are at thinking about whether something's going to hit us later in the century, which is going to wipe out all the children and the rest of us. Uh, and it's, it's, that same, it's that same kind of blindness to, to, to the long term. And I think one of the things that we need to do is to find ways of, uh, of, of, find ways of sort of engineering ourselves around our blind spots so that we can do a better job of, of taking care of the long term future. And we need to face up to the fact that we have these blind spots and, and just try and find... People do point out a problem about trying to talk, infer a right or an, ob an obligation to those that do not exist but may sometime in the future. Do you see a problem in it or you just take it as a pretty easy question to answer? 
I think it's an easy question. I mean, it's a clear case of, of somebody calls it what is data birthism. Why, why, why should the, 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 the date when someone's born, whether it's 10 years ago or, or 10 years from now, why should that make a difference to, 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 the, to the... So presumably there's an obligation to those who've lived in the past as well then? Well, there, there's not much we can there, do there about would be, them. If anything that we could do now, maybe it would affect them. But, yes. but it can't, so, can't. so, so we don't right. have to yeah. think about it. I mean, it's the same sort of thing of, you know, uh, here we're talking about separation in time. The same thing comes up as separation in space. Should I care about people, you know, in sub-Sahara Africa just because yeah. I don't face, face them, I don't know them, I don't have a personal uh, connection with them? I mean, once we establish that human life is worth preserving, I don't see why the difference in time matters any more than the difference in space. Yeah. Um, and I, the, the other thing, I, you know, the, this, this bias we have, the presentism bias, right, that we care so much more about the present than the future. It's, I mean, it's interesting because Plato actually talks about this, uh, you know, why we would, um, you know, if we can get something immediately, uh, but get something much better later on, that will take the thing immediately. Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting for, you know, psychologists, and I think they, some of them have begun to uh, try to explain this, you know, and probably evolutionary psychologists can explain it. You know, life is very uncertain. Um, I don't know if I'm going to, especially if, when I was a hunter-gatherer, I don't know that I'm going to live till tomorrow, you know, grab the thing exactly. today. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that kind of hunter-gatherer thinking is no longer suitable uh, in the, you know, technological age that we live. But we have to think of ways around this mm, now. Yeah, we have to yeah. understand it psychologically and find ways mm. to get around it. Francesca, do you want to answer any of the questions? But um, it's just the intriguing general, one about what comes after happiness. What comes after, oh, well, um, nothing. Uh, like, um, that's, uh, to me, that's the goal. I, I want to just make clear that it's not like I say, yeah, I'm so super happy and my life is so great. That's not the case, but... I'm just saying that when I think why uh, life matters and why it matters that I exist and that you exist, the thing is that you know we can make very great things with our lives and possibly the goal is to to be happy through different ways, but that's the final goal. So I'm not saying that you know uh, <laughs> we should be completely stupid and happy in a sort of uh, uh, eternal daydream or something. But um, you know, and for what involves future generation, I think it's. Um, we don't have a duty to bring into existence a particular individual, of course, uh, but um, probably have an obligation to have future generations, I believe so, but also to make sure that we give them a decent and uh, a decent planet to live in and to flourish or to be happy. So that puts mm. more pressure on us um, okay. at the moment. I think we'll have to note that paradox about that was in the first comment about how we have this will to matter, to use your phrase, and yet it could be um, driving us to behaviour in which we ultimately do not matter because we do not exist. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. I'm not going to be able to take the other questions, but Hugh and Rebecca, and are you, are you going to be around tomorrow, Francesca? Are you here? In the morning, yes. In the morning. So we're all around. Hugh's on other sessions. Rebecca's doing other sessions and she'll Actually also... Actually immediately following this. Oh, week. right. Okay. Yes. And we'll also be doing book signings after that if you want to meet with her and chat with her. But as we wind up, would you please join with me in thanking our wonderful panel? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for your questions.